We just thank you for this evening. We thank for this opportunity we have to come together and to worship you and to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 13, starting at verse 1. The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see, Lift up a banner upon the high hill, exalt the voice unto them, shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones, I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as to a great people, the tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts musters the army for the battle. They come from a far country and from the end of heaven, even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. So we're going to stop there because this is um, a message from, Amen, uh, from uh, Isaiah to Babylon. And he writes a lot of messages to other nations. <laughs> And Babylon is, is a strong nation rising up at this time. They're going to be the one that's going to conquer Israel in the end. And God is putting a prophecy on Babylon, mostly because of their uh, viciousness when they conquered Israel. And they were not nice. Uh, Assyria did the same thing when it conquered the northern kingdom. They were brutal to them. And God, said, God put a curse on them saying, because I used you for a tool and you were too brutal with my people, therefore I'm going to crush you. And Babylon had the same curse upon them. And we're going to see that he's going to say the Medo-Persian Empire is going to take them. And it's kind of interesting when Isaiah is making this prophecy, Babylon is just coming into power. And the Medo-Persians Medo and the Chaldeans are nobodies. <laughs> They're not even a... a noticeable person. It's just like when they make the prophecy that Cyrus will send Israel home of the Medo-Persians. There's no Cyrus. It's not a name that the Hebrews would have used. And yet his, he's named by name. He's going to be the deliverer and Daniel shows it to him when he conquers, conquers Babylon. So these are the things about God's prophecies or how accurate they are. Uh, it, you know, people go, well, you know, prophecies in the Bible, big deal. Well, the prophecies in the Bible aren't like reading a horoscope or, or reading somebody else's Nostradamus that, you know, you can, you know, if you stand on one foot and you cock your head the right way and read the right words in there, you can make them mean anything. You know, there were things like the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And when they said in Bethlehem, it was a little hamlet that, that had nothing famous other than David came from it. Uh, you know, that he was going to be called an, a Nazarene, which made no sense if he's born in Bethlehem. Why would he be called somebody from, uh, from, from Nazareth? You know, so all these things in the Bible that are very accurate, uh, that they were going to be in captivity for 70 years in Babylon, and then they were going home. That made no sense to people. So all these things that come down and people go, well, you know, the Bible has prophecies, but they're really not accurate. You know, they're pretty, very specific prophecies. I like it when people tell me those things, and I will just look at them so often and go, have you even ever read the Bible? You know, because they'll tell you the craziest, you know, craziest things. You know, people will say, well, how can you believe that old book that's so out of date? And I'm going, you, have you ever read it? <laughs> you know, it's like reading today's newspaper half the time. Uh, you know, and we just try to encourage people and challenge them. Have you read the Bible? You're making all these accusations. Have you ever gone in and checked it out? Try to get them to challenge it. So he says, you know, this is a burden of Babylon. Burden literally means oracle or a statement, a prophecy uh, of, of Babylon. And he starts out, lift up a banner upon the high mountains. And this banner, we've talked about this. When you see banner, especially in the Old Testament, it means a standard, an ensign. And we've talked about this. You, in the war of those days, you would have the big flag for the king, the ensign, or certain you know, smaller officers would have their ensign. But if things went wrong in the battle, you were to run to the ensign, especially the king's one, because you'd be protected there because of the royal guard. He always had the, the elite guard around the, the uh, king. 
But he says, lift up your ensign upon the high mountains. Let, let it be seen. Let it be very visible. Exalt the voice of them. You know, so he says there's going to be noise. And in this case, he's talking about their conqueror, conquerors coming in. And it says here, shake the hand. And this is kind of an interesting word. It means to wave your hand to and fro, back and forth. Like you're, I almost picture when, it, because he's saying he's, they're getting the people to come into the city. It's almost like a traffic cop saying, this way. <laughs> this way, because you know, the next statement is going to be that they may go into the gates of the nobles. And so it's like, this way. <laughs> You know, that way, you know, to, to them. So it's almost like they're pointing the way. Enter in to the gates of the nobles. And the gates of the nobles normally are restricted entrances. And they're saying to the army, go this way. To the individuals, go this way. And uh, it's kind of an interesting picture. Uh, it says, I have commanded my sanctified ones. And this does not mean the Jews. This, the better definition would here would be his set apart ones okay which is what sanctified means is to set apart to make holy but in this case he's talking about the Medo-Persian Empire the set apart ones the ones that are going to be his tool to destroy Babylon and uh, so this one sanctified is not really the best word here more set apart dedicated would be a good one I've dedicated these people to do this job and it says, I have also called my mighty ones for my, for my anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. This is the one that I'm not so sure about. The Medo-Persians did not worship God when they, when they did this. But he's saying, I am using them as my tool. And God uses unsaved people to discipline his children sometimes. Uh, we see this over and over. We saw it in the book of Judges when, when the children of Israel would go into sin, God would send the Philistines in to conquer them or the Ammonites in to conquer them. You know, he used pretty evil people that the, that the Jews would have had no problem with if they had just done their job and wiped out all the people in the land and like they were supposed to have. They wouldn't have had all these enemies to give them a hard time. Uh, a couple of times the Canaanites raised up and rebelled against them. And they were definitely supposed to have been killed because they lived in the land with Israel. Uh, but God oftentimes uses unsaved, evil people to bring judgment upon his, upon his people. We see it even in churches, uh, in our church age where churches have gone into apostasy and God has judged lands and stuff that are supposed to be following him and saying no you're not being righteous there's a consequence sin has consequence and here he's telling Israel or Babylon your sins are having consequence and especially when we get to the end of the story if you remember the book of, of Daniel you've got Nebuchadnezzar second king of, of Babylon coming in or second king of the empire of Babylon uh, he conquers them mistreats them Daniel represents God to him, and he ends up, as far as we can tell, Nebuchadnezzar turned to God. All right, he's listening to God, and there's a great chapter that Nebuchadnezzar writes where he was turned into an animal, getting the mind of an animal, and he wrote the, that chapter in Daniel saying, I got my mind back, and I will serve the, 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 the Lord God. And then we have Nebuchadnezzar's grandson who brings the holy items into, into a party and drinks alcohol and stuff from, the, from them, praising their gods, and God writes on the wall. Writes on the wall that they've been you know, judged and they're conquered that very night. So God uses people to punish his children. And we can see it sometimes even in our world. Some Christians have lost jobs or... or in their disobedience have been judged for various things and, and been moved on. But he says, you know, this, I'm going to use them. The noise of the multitude in the mountains, like as a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts musters the host of battle. All right, again, he's talking about. Now, one of the things about this, it starts with a 
prophecy against Babylon. And everybody really believes that this is the Babylon of their day. And remember, we've talked about many times in the prophetic utterances of these prophets, you had an immediate response to the prophecy, and then there's a future fulfillment of the prophecy. As I read this, I see this transition very quickly to be in the end days, when Babylon is raised up in the, in the tribulation period and becoming the head, because you start looking at some of this and it sounds awfully strong to be the Babylon of this, because later on we're gonna see that he says, I'm gonna destroy Babylon and nobody's gonna live in Babylon anymore and that's never happened. Okay, that part of the, the prophecy has not happened yet. So it's very clear that he's referring not just to the Babylonian empire that conquers Israel, but transitions into the end of days. And we're gonna show different places where we see that very clearly. Uh, because Babylon is going to be the center of everything in the end day, during the tribulation period. Uh, we see that in the book of Revelation when we, when we taught that book, we, we showed that. But it says, there's a noise, a noise on the mountain of a great people, a tumultuous noise, and this is the idea of a uh, waves crashing upon, uh, in the middle of a storm, crashing on the beach type picture of this. And if you've ever lived anywhere near the ocean and, and been there during storm time, they can make a lot of noise, even if there's no rocks to crash on. You know, it's just a sandy beach, they can make a lot of noise. Uh, but uh, he's talking about this one, hitting the rocks. And it says, the nation, the kingdoms of the nations gather together. The, the Lord of hosts musters the host of the, of the battle. And you know, we, this is why I think you know, the, he gathers a host against Babylon, but his real host is gonna gather at the tribulation period. All the nations are gonna come and fight against Jesus at the end days, and he's gonna conquer the world. So we're gonna see all of this. Uh, part of this and it says they come from a far country from the end of heaven even the Lord the weapons or the tools of his indignation to destroy the whole land and again if he's talking about just Babylon Babylon has never had a whole land totally devastated matter of fact Babylon has never been totally wiped out like Jerusalem and many of the other cities have so I don't think that this is just talking about Babylon the Empire, it's, it's moving and transitioning very deeply into the end, end days. All right, verse six. How you, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt. They shall be afraid, pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at at another and their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel and cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of the heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in its going forth. The moon shall not cause her light to shine. I will punish the world for their evil, the world for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. All right. This is where I really see the end days part of this prophecy. All right. Um, it says, howl, wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is a statement that is used 29 times in the scripture. And virtually every one that I look at is very obvious or most likely a reference to the end of the days, the end times. And so I think this very clearly is saying the day of the Lord is not just judgment over Babylon, but literally the day of the Lord uh, in uh, Revelation 6, it talks about, about the day of the Lord. Uh, all through the scriptures, it talks about the day of the Lord. And especially in the New Testament, it always refers to the tribulation period. The, some of the Old Testament ones are a little, little clouded with it, but I think they refer to the day of the, day of the Lord, the end, the end days, sometimes called the the trials of Jacob or the, 
or the tribulation of Jacob, when Israel is going to be finally pressed by the world. And it says, It shall come a destruction from the Almighty, and the day of the Lord is at hand. Therefore all hands shall be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And hands here literally refers to the power. Okay? The strength of the strength of man. So all power shall be faint, and every man's heart, the innermost part of the seat of his emotions, shall melt away in fear. And again, that's not necessarily the way Babylon was conquered. They got conquered very quickly. There wasn't even much of a battle because they were all the leaders were busy in a drunken party when they got attacked. They had been surrounded by the army, and they decided to, because they would never have been conquered, nobody could take Babylon. The king with all his commanders were in there having a drunken party when the Medo-Persians diverted the river and, and came in under the sluice gate of the gate of the city and conquered the city. So there wasn't much of a battle. So this definitely isn't referring to the conquering of Babylon uh, from, from the historical point of time. But you think about this in the end days when the Lord returns and he just speaks a word and they're done. Uh, Satan gathers up the world and he just speaks and the sword comes out of it, you know, the sword of power comes out of his mouth and they are destroyed. So we're definitely, as far as I'm concerned, in times. I saw no commentator that agrees with me, but I don't care. Uh, didn't read every commentary, but you know, I read four or five of them and didn't find anybody. But uh, They shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. And pangs and sorrows are distresses and pains. Okay. And then he says, if that wasn't good enough, they shall be, as, be in pain as a woman that travaileth. Uh, and for those who have had a baby, they know that that's a lot of pain. Uh, when, when my first son was born, my wife was holding my hand, and she just about broke it uh, with, all the, with all the pressure she put on my hand. I'm going, okay, there's a lot of pain there. Uh, I have no idea how much pain that is, and I don't want to find out how much pain that is, but that's the description. Uh, that they're going to be pain. And this pain literally means writhing pain. Okay? Uh, so much pain that they're rolling around in excruciating pain. And they shall be amazed at one another. And their faces shall be as flames. And I think that literally is talking about just sweat and, and uh, it, because of the pain and the, and the excruciating thing that they're going through. And this is quite a picture that God, God is giving. Nine, behold, the day of the Lord, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. All right, the day, again, again the day of the Lord reference. <laughs> so again, we're talking about the end, and it's going to be cruel with wrath and fierce anger. God has had times when his wrath has really been poured out on man, primarily the deluge when the world was flooded, Sodom and Gomorrah, various times when he's, you know, when Jerusalem was taken by the Babylonians and the Jerusalem was destroyed, and also in AD 70 when Jerusalem was again destroyed, and we see that at the end days he's going to come with great wrath. And he pours out wrath upon the people, and we see in Revelation 21 significant judgments upon the world trying to get men to turn to God. And it ends up making them go further and further away from God for the most part. I'm sure some people are going to respond during that period. But much like when God sent the 10 plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh kept hardening his heart, hardening his heart, hardening his heart. There's after one of the plagues, the people went to him and said, let's get rid of these people. We will be destroyed if their God keeps, keeps these in. And he hardened his heart and didn't listen to the people saying, get rid of them. There will be people in Revelation that will turn to God. When they see all that's going on and they'll kind of get this idea, uh, oh, there is a God. Haven't really believed in this God. Haven't really thought about him, but there is a God. And turn to him. And it just says, he's going to lay the land desolate. And then he says he will destroy, and literally this word means exterminate, the sinners thereof. Uh, quite a serious in incident. Again, if it's end times, 
What's the first thing that happens when Jesus comes? Everybody who's taken the mark of the beast is placed into hell to await the white throne judgment. And this did not happen when Babylon was, was uh, destroyed. Most of their people were killed in battle, but not all of them. Most of them were conquered. So again, here we are looking clearly at an end time prophecy when God gets ready to start his millennial kingdom. Everybody who has totally rejected him is eliminated. And the only ones that will go into the millennial kingdom are those who did not take the mark of the beast. And the only reason they're not going to take the mark of the beast is because they were trusting in God. And God was protecting them. And because if, remember, the end days to not take the mark of the beast, you're going, you can't buy or sell. If you're not found without the mark of the beast, you're, you're killed. And God will protect his people. But so we see here this, this instance. Then we get into verse 10. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall, not, shall be darkened for, in, his, in his goings, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. I have not seen this happen yet anywhere in time, but God clearly says that it will happen. Here it is in Isaiah. Joel chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 3, verse 15 talks about the, the sun not giving its light, the moon not shining its light. And Revelation 6, 12 through 14 reiterates that God will darken the sun and the stars won't shine. And with all these references... It's probably literal. I mean, it could be that it gets so polluted that you can't see these things, but I have a feeling that there's going to be a darkening on this, you know, whether it's the end of the age or what. Isn't there two other darkenings? Huh? Two other darkenings when Jesus was crucified when he died and in one of the battles. Yes, the, when Jesus died, a three-hour darkening of the sun was a supernatural darkening. So we could still have the sun up there, and God says it's not going to shine because God has power. He has the power to make it not shine. And whether that's supernatural, they literally darken, they literally, you know, get rid of, I don't, I don't know it. You know, when it darkens in the revelation, it's not at the very end. So it pretty much has to be a supernatural darkness. And I never really thought about that, but yeah, tying in Jesus's, the darkness when Jesus was there, uh, we don't know if it was worldwide or not, but we definitely know that Jerusalem found, you know, or that area was in darkness because the Romans have records of it being dark for three hours. And I've never really looked to see if Indians and, and Asia had re recording of a three-hour dark, dark period. And I have a feeling it was probably worldwide. It would be fun to find that because that would be a proof of the accuracy of scriptures if we could find, find that it was dark everywhere in the world. But even if it wasn't, it was dark there, and the Romans have referred to the darkness uh, in their records. And they were amazed, you know, because a lot of people will try to tell you, you know, that people back then were dumb and that eclipses surprised them and everything. But no, their scientists knew that the moon was going to cross in front of the, of the sun. And, you know, yeah, there were superstitious people out there. But anybody that had, had learned mathematics, learned to watch the stars, knew when the knew when the eclipses were coming and they knew that it would be dark for only minutes and it would be done. And so these kind of darknesses that are being talked here are not eclipses. So we don't want to, because that's, well, yeah, it will just means there'll be an eclipse. Well, I'm sorry, when an eclipse comes out, when a total eclipse comes out, you can actually see the stars. They come out. This says the stars aren't going to even show. So we want to be very careful how we listen to excuses that people will make on these things. But it, you know, so again, here we see end times being, the end, end of days being, being referenced. And you know, sin likes darkness. And God's going to let them have darkness so that they, sin will flourish. And uh, verse 11, I will punish the world for their evil, the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and lay low the haughtiness of the humble. And so here it says, he will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Now, evil and iniquity are two different things. Evil is just bad, disagreeable, malignant, okay? That's evil. And iniquity literally is depravity and perverseness, okay? You can be evil 
and still do some good things. But once you step into iniquity, you're pretty much gone beyond. When you hit that iniquity state, you're not really doing good. And we, we've met people or know of people like that. They're just so bad that all they want to do is bad. Our world is getting that way. There are people in this world that they just think they can get away with anything and everything and mistreat people and they might do something good if they think it's going to uh, make themselves better or look better. But in general, they want to do bad. And we're seeing more and more people like that as we get, they just start thriving on their, their wickedness. Gangs can get that way. The more you get away with evil, the more evil you would become. And that's why the very famous saying is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the more power you can gain to yourself, the more you think you can get away with things. And we're in a world now that's not judging evil as evil. And so if you don't judge the evil as evil, then everybody's going to go, well, we can do more evil. Evil is never satisfied at a low level. Sin is never satisfied at a low level. It always demands more and more to be satisfied, and it will never be satisfied. The person who gets into alcohol starts out lower and will always, if they get addicted to it and fall into it, need more and more. It happens with drugs, need more and more. Somebody who starts committing adultery and fornication needs more and more of it and usually gets into the crazier, crazier stuff because they're just not happy with what they find. And sin is never satisfying. It always demands more. If your God is money, you need more and more money, and you will sacrifice everything in your life to get more money. And, and you might even get to the place where you start doing illegal things to get more money. And this is the problem that we have when we look at things. People step out of evil, they start in evil, and work their way into iniquity, where they just are bent on serving that evil, serving that sin. And it happens all the time for each person. And the only thing that really breaks it is God. Because God is what satisfies and fills us. And we see it over and over in just about every sin that we've ever got found ourselves in. We've started going deeper and deeper and deeper into the sin and more and more of the sin. And then day we, re we realize what's going on and we go, God, I've got to repent and forgive me. And God steps in. And that's the wonderful thing. When God steps in, he can change everything. And he can make a mighty change in our life. And this is what he's talking about. He says, I will punish the world of their evil, the wicked for their iniquity. And then I love this. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible or the awesome. All right. So God says, all those people who think they're everything, I, I'm going to show them that they're nothing. And, you know, he does that even in day-to-day in -day activities. He gives the, the, the lost world and even sinner, uh, Christians a lot of leeway to make bad decisions and think that they're really, you know, the, the top dog. I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread or you know, whatever you want to use, you know. And God says, okay, let me show you how weak or how poor you really are. And he cuts them down to size. He humbles them. And scripture says that, before the pride goes before the fall. The pride will always fall at some point. Because if you put your trust in yourself, you're going to fail. And we see, and this is where we see Christian leaders when they fall. They start, they start out right. They start out right, you know, because they're Christian leaders. They, they start honoring God and serving God. And eventually they start getting this idea of, look what I have done. That was Nebuchadnezzar's problem when, he, when God warned him in a dream that, you know, do not be proud. I'm the one that made you king. And the day you forget that I'm the one that made you king, you will be, your kingdom will be taken away. A year later, he was on the palace wall looking around saying, look at this great Babylon that I have created, that I have accomplished. And it says, you fool. <laughs> it now has accomplished what, you, what, what was portrayed. And he went with the mind of a beast for a period of time. And then finally, he looked up and remembered, and God healed him. But he was humbled. 
God humbles us when we, we think that we are the answer. And this, especially when you're doing God's work, it can get hard because especially when God's been blessing, church is growing, finances are up, and you go, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, look what I've done. And then you start making stupid mistakes. Many of, the, many of these pastors fall to adultery. And, you know, it's just they start getting, thinking they're above anything and thinking they have something special or something. I don't know what it is. I ask God to never let me get there because I don't want to get there. And we want to be very careful because God says he will humble the haughty. He will break the proud and make them realize who's, who's in charge. And God is good at making himself known. And a lot of times we hear the people going, well, you know, I'll believe in God when I see him. Well, God will work on that for them too. Uh, well, I'll believe there's a God when I can't make it myself. Well, God can manage that. <laughs> you know, so many CEOs, presidents of companies and everything have fallen flat on their face for not honoring God. And they get addicted to, to alcohol and drugs and just the whole power. And I've known many people in the business world who stab everybody in the back to get up to the top and then they don't have anybody they can trust and they, and they fall flat on their face. And I've seen it over and over again. They got what they thought they wanted, but they didn't do it in a righteous way and it, and it, and it hurt them. And God is saying, I will, <laughs> I will humble them. And we need to be careful for ourselves. that We don't get proud. We don't get arrogant because everything we have is because God gives it to us and allows us to, to obtain it. And the day we think we did it, God will show us that, no, you didn't do it. Uh, all right, verse 12. I will make a man more precious than go fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall be removed out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the day of his fierce anger. And it shall be as a chaste row, and as a sheep that no man takes up, they shall every man turn to his own people to flee every one into his own land. Every one that is found shall be thrust through, and every one that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall they be dashed into pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled, their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir the meads against them. They shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch a tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts in the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be the full of doleful creatures. The owls shall dwell there, the satyrs shall dance there, and the wild beasts in the island shall cry in their desolate houses, the dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. All right. He says, I will make a man more precious than fine silver, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Here he's talking about going back to when their hearts faint and there's no strength in them. He says, if you can even find one person who's, who's able to stand, it'll be like fine gold. And, and then he goes, a golden wedge of Ophir. And Ophir was a place of exceedingly good gold. And nobody knows where it's at. Uh, Solomon sent ships to Ophir. We don't know where they're at. It's not in the Middle East. There's some that think it's in India. But he says, you won't even be able to find a man who's willing to stand, a man who's going to defend. And if you do, this is how precious it'll be. It'll be of great pre uh, preciousness. Therefore, I will shake the heavens. The earth shall be removed out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts. And in the day of his fierce anger. Literally, shake here means that it's going to quake and be disturbed. Now you got to think about this, the heavens. This is heavens. You know, something's going to happen that's going to upset the very heavens. You know, some people will say, well, that's mighty storms. I don't know. Nothing, nothing about a great storm is really going to shake up people. 
especially in our day and age, you know, unless they just miraculously all of a sudden popped into existence all over the world. But then it says, and the earth shall be removed, and this literally means shake and tremble. All right? And this, again, I think we're talking about Revelation because it talks about the star of wormwood coming down and striking, you know, some kind of comment that the, the skies are going to darken. But literally, it also talks about the earthquakes and the shaking of the earth. So much shaking in Revelation that the mountains fall. All right? And that's what it says, that the mountains fall. We're already seeing our earth struggling on its rotation. It, every once in a while, it's now down to about every 10 years where the axis rotates in a major shift. God put the earth in a spin and it's slowing down. It's slowing down as any top, uh, top does. And if you've ever spun a top and you've watched, you know, when it first starts out, it, that, that axis stays pretty straight. And eventually it starts, you know, wiggling back and forth and then it wobbles greatly and we are told in scripture that the earth is going to wobble like a drunken man. There's going to come this time when it, so, when it slows down enough that it will be greatly wobbling. Now, millennial kingdom, a thousand years, God can spin it back again because he's the master. <laughs> and uh, so it says there's going to be mighty things happening in the heavens and the earth is going to wobble and, and teeter, and which will cause earthquakes and cause all kinds of problems. And again, we see these descriptions in Revelation that the world is going to have these problems. And can you imagine an earthquake that's so big that the mountains fall? You know, we probably had a similar earthquakes except the opposite way during the deluge of Noah. We believe, it's many people believe that the world was relatively flat before the flood. And the flood came, God broke the ground open, and then to get the waters to recede the way they did, pushed up the ground through earthquakes and stuff and created the deep trenches to pull the ocean. Because a lot of people will go, well, if, all the if there was enough water to flood over the whole world, where is it all? Well, if you pushed up the Marianas Trench and you pushed up the Atlantic Trench, you'd have most everything covered. You drop the mountains a little bit and you'd cover the whole world. It's not hard. The water's still here on, on the earth. And people go, well, where is it? Right here. <laughs> it didn't go anywhere. It's still right here. You know, Marianas Trench is over a mile deep. You push that up, you'd put a lot of water back over there. There's a lot of water frozen on the poles. So we've got, the water is still here. And we see this whole process going to be in reverse. God's going to flatten out the land again, <laughs> which has quite an impact, quite an impact on the world to flatten out the mountains. And he says people will be hiding under the rocks, which never made any sense. Why would you, in an earthquake, hide under the rocks? It makes, the rocks, yeah, the, the rocks are going to fall on them. That's what it says it does. They fall on them. Uh, it shall be as the chased roe or the hunted roe. Uh, and a sheep that no man takes up, a lost sheep that, that there's no shepherd to go find. And sheep need shepherds. They always have, they always will. Uh, so to be described as a, a sheep that no one is going to go find, that's, and I've shared with you I have about my friend who, his little sheep every once in a while get around a little hill and couldn't see anybody else and they would just go crazy. You know, sheep are not a very smart animal and have no power to defend themselves. You know, they, they have little hooves and those hooves aren't made for battle. <laughs> and it says, every man shall turn to his own people and flee to his own land. When God moves, all these armies will try to run. And trying to run from God is not a very smart thing. It's, you know, you'd be better off turning to him and repenting, but if you've ever tried to run from God, you know that it doesn't work. Uh, it was described by Shakespeare as the hound of heaven, you know, coming after you, and he keeps chasing after you. And for those of us who are saved, and we know what that is like also, the Holy Spirit just keeps relenting, unrelenting after us to, to get us to come to him. And for those who are lost, the Spirit does the same thing. Keeps convicting them, keeps convicting them, keeps putting them into places where you, know, you need to turn to God or fail. And we see this over and over in our world. And we've talked about this. The, the famous person, the rich person, who finally just commits suicide because they're just not happy. 
because the Spirit is convicting them. You need God, you need God, you need God. And, and when you run out of dreams, if you don't have God, you've got a problem. Many of us had dreams maybe when we were a kid, you know. Uh, by the time I'm 30, I'm going to be a millionaire. I'm going to be able to retire and enjoy life, you know. And most of us don't make it. <laughs> Even if we're really good at business and everything, most of us don't make those kind of dreams. And even if we did, it wouldn't have been fulfilling. Most millionaires are not happy with their money because it just, it will never fulfill. The superstar athlete or, or actor and actress never gets fulfilled by their fame and fortune because it just won't do it. God placed an infinite need in us and only an infinite God can fill that infinite need. And no matter how much stuff we have, it's not going to fill an infinite space in our heart which is why we need to turn to God. And it says, every man that is found shall be thrust through, and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. This is a very violent period that God says, you're going to be destroyed. You stood against me, you're going to be destroyed. Their children shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses shall be spoiled, and their wives ravished. So this attack, you know, the children destroyed. Their houses spoiled or plundered. And then their, and it says, and um, their wives, where am I at? I lost my spot. Their wives ravished, literally raped. And that happens even in battles to this day for many armies that these kind of things happen. You know, unless they're a righteous army and even there's not very many of those. During World War II, this was happening when Russia would take over some place and, and liberate the town. These kind of things happened. It got to the place where the United States was the one that they wanted because at that time our people were fairly moral and they didn't do all these things. They just were kind to them and, and, and liberated them. I don't know for sure whether our current army would be that way or not. It's, bad to think of because we, the moral standards of our country have fallen so far and we start looking at things that have happened in Gitmo and everything that, and go, that's not our army, that's not the army America has been known for and yet that's the army that, would, that we have now because of the lack of morals in our country because we've fallen so far from God. When we tell people there are no right and wrongs, there's no absolutes, people start acting like there aren't any. And when they start acting like there aren't any, all kinds of troubles happen. And this is this picture that he's talking about, that there, there shall be all kinds of problems. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. They shall not have regard for silver or for gold. They shall not delight in it. So here we're switching back to the actual Babylon. And you know it says, they shall not regard silver and gold. In other words, they will not be bought off. Many times you read in the scriptures that an enemy, a king is coming to attack them and a king the king that's getting ready to be attacked looks and says, I can't, I can't win this battle. So they offer him a whole bunch of gold and silver to go away. And many times it worked. All right? I'm giving you all this gold and silver. I'm giving you all the gold and silver I have. Don't, don't come and attack me. In this case, it says the Medes and Persians aren't going to, the Meda and Chaldeans are not going to regard silver and gold. You can't bribe them. You're not going to get them, get them to go away. They, their bows shall also shall dash the young men to pieces. They shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb, and their eyes shall not spare the children. All right, they're going to destroy the fighting men. They're going to destroy the, the, the babies and the children. Yeah, pretty severe uh, thing, and this is what happened when Babylon was conquered. They're, they went through and killed the, the city pretty much. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellencies shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So now we step back out of this. Because Babylon has never been totally wiped out. And Sodom and Gomorrah has never returned in the destruction of that valley where God rained the ash and fire upon them and destroyed them. That valley has never been the fruitful valley. And remember, why did... Did Lot live in the Sodom and Gomorrah Valley? Because when he was up there with Abraham and Abraham said, take your pick on what you want, he looked down and beheld the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah was a great place to 
to raise the animals and had lots of lush vegetation. Had a lot of sin too, but he didn't look at the sin. And then when God rained it down, it became a desolate place and it stayed that way. And it says Babylon's going to be like that. Be like that. And verse 20, it shall never be inhabited. Babylon currently is inhabited. It shall, and it shall, neither shall they dwell in there for generation to generation. People are living there. The Arabians, the, 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 the nomads, will not pitch their tents there. And the shepherds will not take their flock there, will not camp out in there. That is not true of that area today. Now, it is a pretty desolate area, but Babylon, the city, is still there. Many of the cities are still there. When God destroys it, and again, Revelation talks about the destruction of Babylon, the complete and utter fall of Babylon. And so for a thousand years, nobody will be there. When, God, when Christ reigns and he's destroyed Babylon, there won't be anybody living there. And this prophecy will go back, go back into its fulfillment. And at the end of the thousand years, God totally destroys the heavens and earth and creates new ones. So it still won't be inhabited because there won't be a place to be inhabited anymore. And so we see here, again, this picture. We see two verses here in the middle that kind of, kind of sound like it could have been true for, for the Medes attacking them. And then we go back to this time that has not existed yet. The wild beast of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures. The owls shall dwell there, and the satyrs shall dance there. And the wild beast of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, the dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is come near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. All right, so wild beasts of the desert shall dwell there in, in uh, Babylon. Again, this has not happened up to this point. And it says, their houses shall be full of doleful creatures. The word literally here is howling creatures. So the most interpreters believe that he's talking about jackals and hyenas shall dwell in the fallen city. Um, and owls shall dwell there. Again, this word literally means unclean birds. <laughs> Why they interpret it as owls, I don't know. Uh, they believe that it could be owls or ostriches or just any number of the unclean birds. And satire shall dance there. Uh, they, for some reason in King James, use the satire. It literally means he goat, as far as we can tell. What? Male goats oh. shall be there in the city. Says dragons. dragons on verse 21? Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, we're getting down to 22 in a moment. Because uh, satires have a are mythical creatures that are half man, half goat. So why they put that in there in the King James, I have no idea. Yes, and there are certain verses that use this same word to portray the devil. That's not true here. The, and it, maybe it is. The devils will in, in, inhabit uh, Babylon, I guess, but nobody lives there, so they wouldn't they wouldn't want to live there. But yes, Satan is oftentimes looked at as a goat. Uh, so we see this whole thing. And oftentimes when we see names of animals, we don't know exactly what those words mean. When we see names of trees, we don't necessarily know what they mean. If you remember when we went through the book of Psalms and they were talking about musical instruments, we don't always know what those mean. And it, it's, it makes sense in one way, because unless that was your realm of expertise, you really didn't pay much attention to it. And I think about a time when I was listening to the radio and they were doing advertisement for window, window curtains. And apparently, every piece of a window curtain has a name. You know, the sidebars, the, the bottoms, the tops, the shears, and all these things. And one of the people was from Australia and says, well, in Australia, we don't have a word a word for this, and I'm thinking, yes, you do. You just don't know it. Because I didn't know what half those words were without going in and, and looking them up. Okay, and Musicians have these words that mean everything to them and might not mean anything to you if you've never studied music. We do this even in sports. There are th certain terms and stuff that are used in sports, and unless you're into that sport, you don't really understand what they're talking about. Even we as Christians have words we use that we we use all the time, and people listening to us don't really understand what we're talking about. 
the unfortunate thing, many times Christians don't know what they're talking about. They just know how to use the word. Uh, so when you see some of these things, don't be too upset that different places you know, translate it differently. Because it's really not that big a deal because we don't know. This word that they translate out well, literally just means unclean bird and probably at the time referred to a specific unclean bird. Uh, satires is definitely not the mythical half man, half goat. I don't buy that. I don't like that word in here. Uh, but the normal translations in the lexicon say that it's a he goat, a male goat. Uh, there shall be wild beasts of the islands, and they uh, shall cry in their desolate houses, the dragons in their pleasant palaces. Dragons, I have no problems. We've discussed this. I believe the dragons literally uh, represent dinosaurs uh, because there's too much lore of dinosaurs out there, and we would just called them dragons before. And so I have no problem with that word. I would put dinosaur in our, in our current day and age. I'd put dinosaurs dwell in their palaces, uh, at their pleasant palace. And her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. God's definition of, of near and not prolonged is very different than our definition of you know, near and not prolonged. We are mortal. A year seems like a long time for us. You know, a lifetime seems like a long time to us. But in the whole scope of somebody who's eternal, a year is nothing. You know, Peter says it this way, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is, is a day to God. Why? What is time to God? When you've been around forever, the entire existence of the world at seven, you know, 6,000, 7,000 years, when it finally gets done with, they're going to be like, eh, just a drop in the bucket. When we've been with God, 20 trillion years from now, and we look back at this world and going, I thought that was a long time. You know, I thought that life was a long time. It was, it was over. It was just nothing. And so when God says her time is near, from his perspective, it's near. From our perspective, it seems like a long ways off. And who knows how much longer it might be. Maybe still a couple hundred years from now, or it may be tomorrow. There's nothing keeping God from coming immediately. And so we see this whole thing, a picture of the judgment in the last days. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. And we just ask you to give us great blessing as we go about your business. Give us opportunities to share you and just to show your love to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.